Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. I am joining you in person in our studio. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's the first time we've been in the studio since March of 2020. You know, I was just trying to think about it on the drive over here, which is like one of the longest drives I've taken in uh, 2021 <laughs> yeah. uh, that's been inside of the city. I guess we, when we started this back in like 2016, we were doing it in my living room. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I guess it was what, like 2017 that we moved it over here, which is a building in Smoketown that's owned by Ben Carter. And really, we've been doing that ever since. We wanted to do that because we were starting to have more guests on the show. And it was kind of weird to, like, invite people into my living room to do that. And, yeah, I guess we've been doing that here ever since, except for then the pandemic happened. And so it's nice to be back. It's like being home. So, yeah, it's different a little, but also the same. Yeah, it, it took a minute to, like, get things going with the mixer and everything, but... Yeah, we really hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe not the best week because I already messed up my mic really bad in the last episode, but uh, hopefully we've got everything squared away. Anyways, we got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. No guests, but we do have lots of other things to talk about. Jasmine's going to update us about a couple of different like pol- policing and protest actions that are happening across the state and across Louisville. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Mayor Fisher's budget address that uh, came out. We are going to do a COVID update, and, and that's really kind of it. So a pretty Louisville-centric show, but... Lots of things that are happening in Louisville that have impacts across the whole state. So, Jasmine, why don't you get started by talking to us about protests, policing, and strikes? Okay, well, I think that the biggest news is certainly that Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the DOJ will investigate LMPD. So that's pretty big, right? Yeah, that's a very huge deal. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so they're going to examine use of force, including the use of force during peaceful protests, stop searches and seizures, racial discrimination, and ADA compliance. Like, basically, how are the police treating people with disabilities? Right. Um, so, you know, Mayor Fisher has spoken and seemed supportive of the investigation and says it, it's a good thing to have them looking into it. It will be conducted by employees in the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, as well as people from the Civil Division of the local U.S. Attorney's Office, which, I mean, until recently, that office was headed by Russell Coleman, who was a Trump appointee, who, I don't know, seemed pretty aligned with Trump. (laughs) Okay, sure. I don't know, that's how I would describe him. And there hasn't been anyone appointed to fill... That position. We we talked to John Yarmouth about this a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. about how uh, how soon that would be forthcoming and the person who would be leading that office. I guess you probably know more about this than me, but is it like somebody who is like a deputy or something that's that's running it right now? As Russell Coleman has like filtered into like private practice. Yeah, I'm assuming that there's some kind of interim. Yeah, usually US interims. Right now. Yeah, interims are usually like yeah the the deputy in there who's just basically a a, a placeholder. Yeah. Uh, but this would be, like, a huge deal for whoever takes over the office. Like, this is something that they're walking right into. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's worth noting that there has already been an over-100-page report that made a lot of recommendations for LMPD and also referred to them as a department in crisis. Um, so we already know that they have a lot of issues <laughs> and things that they could do better. And we talked about that on the podcast a couple months ago. So, 
I don't know, Robert, like, what do you think about this announcement? Yeah, you know, this was the Breonna Taylor situation, you know, her killing, and then the protest that came after. It was such a big deal during the presidential election, right? I mean, Joe Biden, like, called Tamika Palmer. That was, like, in the news. And, you know, this was, this was a, like, a national issue, of course. And so I think that, you know, People wanted to know what the federal government and what the Biden administration was going to do about this. I mean, especially since Daniel Cameron, you know, very clearly made he made very clear that he wasn't going to do anything about it. And so uh, I think that this is something we probably should have seen coming. But it seems it's such a big deal. You know, it's such a big deal to have such a big investigation of the police department. I think the mayor's kind of reaction to it was kind of interesting. It's not often that you're like your police department did so bad that the federal government has to get involved and you're like, this is great. I think it kind of goes <laughs> to the heart of like, I kind of feel like the mayor feels somewhat powerless. And I mean, I feel like he's tried to signal that throughout this entire situation and, and that's kind mm-hmm. of fallen on deaf ears. And I think that that's probably fair, but I do kind of also feel like he is a little bit powerless, whether or not that's his own fault. That's, that's something to be debated, but the federal government likely has some authority that they can throw around and, and really start to enforce some some stuff with the police, so we'll see. I, I I mean it's it's yet to be seen. These things often take a long time, but we're very early in the Biden administration, and so he may be the the case that he actually gets to investigate this very fully and come out with a big report uh, and really make some change in the police department. And something that I think is interesting that I've seen this week is that the Department of Justice is already contacting people and talking to people and holding meetings. Attica Scott has said on Twitter that she's talked to people from DOJ to Corey Arthur, Metro Councilman has said that they've reached out to him. So like, this is moving. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're already, they're already working on it. Um, I guess the only thing I would know, you know, I don't know how much like wide sweeping change we can expect. The It, it is still like pol- cops investigating cops kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then this is something I, I kind of hinted at, or I mentioned like last week, is that I feel like Louisville has made a lot of, you know, changes to the rules. Um, but one of the big problems is, like, how much do changes to the rules impact what's actually going on? Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that, like, the book's fully written, and I think that there are often times that changing the laws and changing the rules have a big impact on what's going on, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that we're still in the moment of, like, figuring out if banning no-knock warrants is going to have a measurable impact on, uh, you know, on police behavior with with citizens. And I think that there have been some policy level changes at the police department level. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm not super hopeful about that, but I do think that like federal enforcement about this is, is good news because it means that a higher level of authority that actually has yeah. the, a more of an ability to impact the behavior of the police department uh, has a chance to do that, um, has a chance to like actually exercise that authority. Uh, and, and I mean, I kind of I, I, I'm sympathetic to people who think that, you know, without getting rid of the police department, we're never going to make any progress. But I just don't think that that's really in the cards. So, I mean, I think that this has a chance to, like, actually make a difference. But we'll see. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, it's a positive thing for someone that has a little more authority to be coming in and looking at these things, because, like, I don't know. This is just me, but, like, I think you know some stuff is going to be exposed yeah, from this. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Like, we already know about a lot of the problems with LMPD. 
And that goes back to, like, the Explorer scandal years ago to Breonna Taylor to David McAtee and, and all of these things. Um, but I'm guessing we're going to be learning even more from yeah, this. Yeah, probably right. And for the some of the things that have happened that we know about that haven't had a lot of, you know, repercussions, that mm-hmm. might actually start to happen there, too. Yeah. All right, so our, our next related story, um, there were some protest arrests this weekend. So... Protesters gathered at Injustice Square over the weekend calling for justice for Dee Garrett, who was the man who was assaulted by LMPD last week that we talked about on the show. Protesters marched to 2nd and Broadway and then went down Bardstown Road in the Highlands, um, and that's where they kind of met with police out front of Highland Taproom, I believe. Three people were arrested, including live streamer Matthew Ballard. Um, their march ended after stopping and chanting in front of Mayor Fisher's house for some time. And I saw videos of the arrest, and I can't really figure out, um, like, what these people were doing wrong. Yeah. It looked like police met them on Bardstown Road, and they kind of moved off to the... People, like, moved onto the sidewalks, and then three people got arrested. But I'm not really sure why, and I'm not sure why it was those three people. So... I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hopefully their cases will get dismissed because I didn't really see any wrongdoing in videos that I saw. I, I get the sense that they probably will be. The, there were three arrested people who didn't seem like that they were doing anything, and, and that could definitely be construed as bad. Uh, I think, though, like, they let the protesters go. You know, this is something we talked about last year where they, like, kind of started kettling people at, you know, I don't even know where what road it was on Bardstown Road. But it was basically like they wouldn't let them go any further. Mm-hmm. And that was something I said at the time is like, where are they going to go? They're just going to keep going to Bardstown or whatever. They like went to the mayor's house. They did a chant, a couple chants, chanted for a couple hours or whatever in front of the mayor's house and then went home without much incident. Three people got arrested. That's bad. But we didn't see, I mean, I don't know. Did you see any like major confrontations or anything like we saw last year with like the riot cops like beating anybody with like sticks or anything like that? No, it definitely was not that. But I also don't understand why people were arrested. Like, they weren't, like, meeting them in any kind of, like, physical altercation. Yeah. They were getting onto the sidewalks, like... Well, there's definitely room for improvement still. That is definitely (laughs) true, yeah. Yeah. Um, And then these are just, like, a couple small related news tidbits. Um, In an interview with Fox News, Daniel Cameron said that the country is not systemically racist and that comments about systemic racism just throw fuel on the fire yeah (laughs) so there's that he's been doing stuff i think today he also said he was adding his name or the the kentucky attorney general's name to a lawsuit suing about climate change i mean he's i guess that there's like an arms race uh you know jamie comer's been on the news a lot kelly Kraft has been kind of like upping her social media game Uh, so I think that there is a little bit of an arms race for, for 2023 in terms of what Republican is going for the nomination. And I definitely think that Daniel Cameron uh, is not done. Uh, I don't think the attorney general will be the last office he runs for. Uh, so he has to stay in the news as much as possible. Yeah, and I don't think anyone thought that that's where he's going to no. stay put. <laughs> what is, there's a record of my old Kentucky podcast saying this exact thing, that he's not done. Our attorney general is not his ultimate destination. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then the other one is that Brett Hankison's trial in Jefferson Circuit Court has been rescheduled for February 2022. So I, I 
kind of said this a couple of weeks ago when we yeah. talked about it, that I wasn't sure that the trial would actually happen in August. And that's probably the right decision to postpone because he is out of custody and there's over a year's worth of trials for in-custody people who have not had their day in court yet, and those trials probably need to happen first. Yeah, totally agree. I, it, it is kind of an odd situation because, like, people who are advocates for justice are like, we want this one to happen, but yeah. then also that we have all these people in prison, and it's a court is a finite resource mm-hmm. uh, in getting, you know, people's trials dealt with who are already in custody is definitely something that I think, I agree with you, should take priority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then something else I just wanted to talk about a little bit is this, like, notion about downtown Louisville since the protest from last summer. And I feel like the conservative talking point since protests began after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were killed um, has been that, like, downtown, like, nearly burned down or that it's a ghost town because of protesters. And I feel like that's something that I'm still, like, hearing from conservatives and so i just wanted to like talk about it a little bit because i'm downtown every day yeah i'm not i go down there every once in a while and i've definitely been down there quite a bit more after being vaccinated but i don't think i mean it's kind of crazy honestly jasmine you know since i feel like i left my house at the same time as everybody else you know i was pretty early to get uh, you know vaccinated i guess uh compared to a lot of other people But as I started going out, you know, and it's nice weather and things are starting to open, I feel like downtown businesses are having trouble, like, meeting the demand of people down there and having enough staff and having enough, like, stuff. Like, it's definitely not dead. It is hopping a lot down there now. Right. And and that's what I wanted to talk about because I really noticed it in the last couple weeks. And, like, what really happened is that downtown shut down in March due to COVID – before right. the Breonna Taylor protest, and it stayed shut down because most people that work downtown have still been on some kind of work-from-home schedule. Right. I mean, a big part of downtown is, like, Humana employees and people that work in the courthouses that are kind of on, like, hybrid schedules, and it's just stayed shut down because of COVID, not because of protests. And now, a year later, it really has come back to life quickly. Like, when... Whenever I go to pick up a sandwich for lunch, like, it seems like a lot of, like, Louisville tourism yeah. is happening every day. I see people with their mini slugger bat <laughs> and going into the Science Center. Businesses are starting to reopen. There are some new ones opening. Um, I tried to eat dinner downtown, and weights were crazy yeah. last weekend. So. It's really changed, and it's changed really quickly, and it's it's really just misrepresenting, like, what's happened to say that it, it was that way because of the protests. Yeah. We, we checked out the new West 6th Brewery a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I guess this was last weekend. And, you know, represent, because, you know, I have my Lexington roots. Uh, I was in Lexington when West 6th started, so I always liked that place, and I like that they have a spot in Louisville now. And there's, like, this place to get food that's, like, very close to there, and we're like, oh, we'll just pick up some food there. And, like, we tried to call them, even though they were right there. And we tried to, like, knock on the door because we figured, you know, I don't know how ordering works here. And they were like, we're not taking any more orders. We have too many. So we ended up having to go to a different place that we like downtown a lot anyway. Uh, yeah, and get food from there. So, it, yeah, it's it, it seems like their big problem is is 
you know, businesses not knowing how to raise wages to hire people. Yeah. <laughs> That's more yeah. of the problem uh, than actually, uh, you know, lose not having enough demand. So for sure. Yeah. And so I also wanted to highlight a couple black owned businesses downtown for Derby Week. One of those is the Salad Chick. She is on 428 West Market and it's just like really huge build your own salads i saw this place so yeah. have you have you eaten there is it good yeah it's all right really good and then the other is black jockeys lounge and this was highlighted in a subscribers only article by the courier journal this is the old encore on fourth space and the owner has turned the space into like a fine dining restaurant that also educate educates guests through stories and artwork about black jockeys so i thought that was really cool and a good recommendation for Derby Week. All right, cool. We'll check it out. And then my last story, it's it's not really related to the other ones. It's, it's Derby-related and protest-related, though. Um, so 50 or so union workers have been protesting outside of Churchill Downs over valet contracts. So valets are employees who saddle the horses and prepare them for the race. So they're pretty important to have them. Yeah. Um, racetrack employees have a union, but the track's valets have been working without a contract since November after their previous one expired. And then Churchill Downs canceled negotiations after the last offer was rejected. And so basically what they're asking for, workers have asked for a raise that would cost two different tracks, Churchill and Turfway in northern Kentucky. Between the two tracks, it would cost them a combined $27,000 for the raise that they're asking for. That's not a lot. Yeah, I think I saw in an article. Yeah, I think I saw that they make like more than a billion dollars in total revenue. Yeah, seems like seems like not that much. Yeah. And then they're asking for minimum staffing requirements. Also, not a lot to ask. Yeah. It seems like, Um, but the story's been like kind of quiet, and I think as of today, um, the union has authorized a potential strike, so that they're not like actively striking, but it's been authorized. So. Um, we'll see what happens with that going into just a couple days before Derby now. Yeah, I mean, it seems it it does seem to me from what I've read, which you know, the racetrack itself has been very quiet about this. But so basically, all the information we have is from the strikers or from the potential strikers, the valets, and they've said, you know, we're only asking for basically twenty seven thousand dollars in minimum staffing requirements, and that does not seem unreasonable. So I don't know because the the racetrack hasn't said what the other side of this argument is. So, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, if you're a worker in a union, you want to, you know, negotiate at your highest point of leverage, which seems like it's like the week of the Derby. That makes sense. So we'll see what happens. You know, uh, definitely hope that they still have the horse race because, like, that's important to Louisville. It's important to a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, also hope these people get their get their wages. So there you go. Yeah. Did you know, Robert, that I used to cater a dinner for like valets and other Churchill Downs, like stable employees and stuff back in the day? I did not. Did you like when you when you worked for the wing place? Yeah. So I worked at a barbecue restaurant and every year they Churchill Downs would like throw a party for their employees where they had like stuff for their kids. They had like snow cones and inflatables and it was kind of like a little carnival and I catered the food. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Serving those who serve the horses. There you yep. go. All right, Jasmine, let's talk a little bit about Mayor Fisher's budget address. So just like we, we've talked about the, the you know state of Kentucky's budget address several times in the history of this show, but the, the mayor of Louisville and really the mayor of every city does one of these as well. 
And Greg Fisher delivered his 2021 budget address last week. And in it, he increased city employment by about 60 people across government. He eliminated some overdue fines at the library. And when I say he did this, he did this in his budget, which is needs to be approved by Metro Council. But his budget also sends $5 million to the West End TIF that we've talked about that's happening through state government. And also it includes investment in a myriad of other projects and, and programs across the city like Code Louisville, the Equity and Procurement Task Force, B3T, which is a minority, minority business incubator, the Office of Equity, and many others. However, the major headline about the budget, rightly so, is how much it reckoned with LMPD. And the upshot is that LMPD is getting about four times as much money as previously, moving from about $5 million to $19 million. That's not super fair to say that they're quadrupling their overall funding because in some ways the mayor's hands were tied. The Bevanet-era pension reforms meant that the city had to increase funding of pensions for police by about $10 million. The, the police department uh, has its own pension and the city has to set aside a bunch of money for it. Uh, so otherwise, you know, there is some new money for new positions, uh, expanded spot chatter and funding for three new recruit classes, which is pretty typical. I think the money that the police department itself is getting, at least the way that Mayor Fisher lays it out, is that it's pretty flat. But Mayor Fisher pointed out that many of the increases in funding were for like non-policing public safety measures. And he listed them off as like the Synergy Project, uh, which aims to improve community and police trust, the Group Violence Intervention Program, money for intelligence-led policing, funding for the Pivot to Peace Program, uh, which is uh, something that builds capacity in organizations committed, committed to violence prevention, and a lot of others. So, Jasmine, uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of these programs seem to be like very on-brand for Greg Fisher. Uh, they've got names like Pivot to Peace, and actually one of them actually includes the word synergy. Yeah, that's synergy <laughs> is what you know, I was thinking about there. Yeah, and, and you know, stuff like this is, is definitely the type of thing that Greg Fisher has brought to a lot of the other issues and problems that his administration has faced and you know your mileage may may vary as to what you see as the what as the effectiveness of programs like these i I think right now a lot of people are really down on solutions like these because i don't think that they've proven to be as useful as advertised uh, across city government and i don't necessarily think that there's a lot of hope for programs like this to solve the real problem with with LMPD. But this also kind of feels like, uh, I don't know, again, it seems like people, ha- there were there was a large contingent of people that asked for like defunding of police and then there was a significant backlash to that and I think like you're starting to see people even like talk about adding funding for these like non-policing public safety measures. Jasmine and I already, we talked about this a couple weeks ago and I, I definitely am not going to ask you whether you think it's a good idea to increase funding uh, for, for these sorts of measures, because I think you're going to say definitely no. But do you think that this is neutral or bad or something else? Like, how do you think about, like, funding for these non-policing public safety measures? Um, I guess on their face, I would say bad, because, well, I guess what I don't know is, like, who's running these things, who runs the Synergy Project and the Group Violence Intervention Program and Pivot for Peace. Like, if if the police are still running whatever these projects are, then I think it's bad. If there is a whole other department, other types of employees running these as, like, nonprofits or, or whatever, I think that's different, and then that 
that is good. Um, but if they still fall under the police umbrella, I don't, I'm not for funding in that way. Like, I, I don't think that anything is going to change by funding the same people who um, are, like, beating people up. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally, people I totally get and, that. And, like, won't take responsibility for <laughs> their missteps and things like that. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense to me. I, I, I would guess, and I don't know for sure, I would say that, it's likely that a lot of these have some level of police involvement, but I don't think that they're run by the police. Like, I think probably they have, like, police on their boards or something like that. Or, like, former police officers are running these projects or people who are close to the police. I think a lot of these are non-governmental groups that are getting this money. I think they're, like, programs uh, that are just getting city funding. Um, but the also, it's worth noting that, like, the way that this is going to work is that the Metro Council now has to ask these questions, and it's kind of up to them to, yeah. to ask them. So I hope they do. Yeah, I don't know. Um, definitely seems like the defund the police movement has not come to Louisville, at least in terms of the mayor's budget, uh, which I think kind of is in line with, you know, kind of the way that the Democratic primary worked out and also just the election worked out is that, uh, that became a very toxic talking point. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know, I think in some ways too bad because I think that the discussion was a lot broader than the simplistic terms that people wanted to put it into. And it's too bad that we didn't kind of have a reckoning with that. We're mm -hmm. just basically funding the police at the same level, the LMPD at the same level, and then just putting a bunch of money towards these other programs with who knows what will happen. Yeah, and, and I will say, like, I've attended some, like, non-policing like ju criminal justice conversation kind of things um, where police are present and they're usually just like very um, not into it I yeah. would say and like kind of antagonistic about the topics that we're talking about so like in my experience when I have been in rooms with police at these kind of like meetings and conversations it, it's never been a positive experience yeah so I, I think, think that's where like my thoughts on it come from too yeah i i that makes sense to me i think that also kind of gets back to what we were talking about in your segment where we were talking about like the authority that the mayor has over the police department like trying to get the police involved in solving some of these problems is thorny because like they seem to be able to be above the authority that's set above them, which is like the mayor's mm -hmm. office. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, so that that's kind of the main headline and what I wanted to talk about mostly. But in many ways, the city's budget as a whole is not really complete because in addition to all the regular money that the city is getting from you know, the taxes it normally levies, the city also received $434 million in American Recovery. Uh, I don't remember what the P stands for. American Recovery Plan Act. There you go. Uh, Protection. Who knows? ARPA, the, 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 big, the big bill that passed Congress. Uh, yeah, the, the city of Louisville is getting $434 million in that. And Mayor Fisher said that the regulations about how that money could be spent were not complete, so he didn't include that in his budget. So this money is nearly half of an entire year's normal budget. So, you know, that's one-time money that could be spent on a lot of different kinds of things, but it only comes once, so it's going to have to be kind of unique investment-type spending. So the state government kind of had to scramble to come up with something because they're only in session for 60 days. But the Metro Council is in session all year. So as 
we get more clarity about what this money can be spent on, I think they'll probably start to come up with plans about how to spend it then. This is one of Mayor Fisher's last budget addresses. I think it's going to be, I think this budget itself is an interesting encapsulation of his term in office. Louisville's been pushed by activists to face a set of problems it hasn't really dealt with in the past, you know, around policing. Uh, and, and while Mayor Fisher does seem to be responding to the calls to do something, uh, I think his brand of solutions and the brand that he's pitching is, is certainly seem to be uh, quite a bit like his solutions to other problems. And I think like his solutions to a lot of other problems certainly have uh, a growing chorus of critics across the city. So, you know, in some ways, I think it is very similar to the way th that he's governed before, but mm -hmm. just about this specific issue. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, so so those were two big Louisville-centric stories, which makes sense because it's Derby Week, so we're you know more Louisville-centric than normal. Uh, but we did want to talk about COVID before we ended the show. So Jasmine, uh, cases this week were down, uh, very close to the local minimum that we set two weeks ago. Last week's case drop week over week was fourteen percent. That's still in line with the plateau. I actually said on Twitter that I thought we were again in a decrease. But Andy Bashir said we were in a plateau, and I trust him to say what we're doing. Uh, so we're in a plateau. But one good thing is that our positivity rate is no longer rising. It's actually approaching 3% after spending a few weeks around 3.5%. So it went up. We were a little worried about it, and now it's back down. So that's good. As of Wednesday, there are seven red counties, many of which are smaller counties in eastern Kentucky. Lewis, Robertson, Bath, Montgomery, Powell, and Morgan, uh, you know, Lewis, I think, is the least dense county in Kentucky, and I think Robertson is the smallest altogether. Mm -hmm. So Monroe is the only county outside of eastern Kentucky to be red, and that's in southern Kentucky along the Tennessee border. So after seeing a troubling upward tick, Louisville actually saw a decrease. Um, cases dropped pretty significantly. They were down to 599, which is the first week with fewer than 600 cases since July 2020. And that sets a 2020, 20, that sets a 2021 low, that beats out 607 cases set in early April. So Louisville's actually doing pretty well week over week. But Lexington, which we also said rose pretty significantly in the last episode, that they increased again. Although this week they only saw a pretty modest rise. However, that means they spent two weeks at a level between 15 and 20% higher than their low point, which is set again in early April. So Lexington still remains pretty high, at least compared to where we've been. Louisville seems to be going down. Uh, comparing Kentucky to the rest of the country, Kentucky ranks 38th this week for new infections, about the same as where we were last week. And the problem areas across the country haven't changed too much. Michigan continues to be the place where the pandemic is the worst, although it's come down significantly from where it was at its high. And the states in the Northeast, like New Jersey, Delaware, Rhode Island, Maine, and Pennsylvania, they're struggling. Uh, and then vacation spots like Florida and Colorado are also struggling. The nation appears to be mostly in a plateau, similar to the state as a whole. So, like, the, the United States of America is a lot like Kentucky in that way. The United States is averaging just north of 50,000 cases per day and just south of 700 deaths per day from COVID. So that's worth mentioning is, like, we feel like things are actually going pretty well right now. We're still losing about 700 people a day to this disease, which is pretty bad, I think. So that's that. Kentucky is seeing some troubling trends, though, when it comes to vaccines. So first, there is some good news, which is that more than 1.7 million Kentuckians now have at least one shot of the vaccine, which that's great. I mean, think about it. You know, we're, we're pretty used to seeing numbers that are rolling in in terms of how many vaccines have happened in Kentucky. But it's really kind of a miracle 
that 1.7 million Kentuckians have gotten a vaccine as of like April 2021 after this was a brand new disease in March of 2020. So, uh, but that number is definitely not trending in the right direction. So last week, fewer than 60,000 people received a vaccine. And, and that's by far the lowest amount since our supply issues disappeared. The week prior, we talked about how bad it was, and it was 85,000. So that's, you know, a difference of like 25,000 people getting the vaccine from what we thought was a bad week to a really, really bad week. But before that, you know, 125,000 people. So we're, we're talking cutting in half the number of people who got the vaccine since two weeks ago. Yeah, it, it seems to be dropping like consistently and really fast. Yeah. In Louisville, the number of people receiving the first shot plummeted. There was like 29,000 two weeks ago, and then there were 13,000 last week. That number is so bad, less than half of the number from the previous week, that like I wonder if it's wrong because it's so bad. But, uh, I, you know, that's the data that we have and what we're going to go with. And But the top counties for vaccinations are all in central Kentucky. So Woodford, Franklin, and Fayette all have more than 50% of their populations with the first dose and more than 40% fully vaccinated. So good for Central Kentucky. Um, I think that that kind of matches what we're seeing across the country. We're starting to see a really significant separation across the country in terms of states that have good vaccination rates. So New Hampshire, again, tops tops the list with 60% uh, with the first shot. And then Massachusetts and Connecticut are really catching up. They're at 54%. And then there's lots of states that have uh, around the, the country's average so the country overall, the country's overall vaccination rate is forty three percent, and several states are in a bunch around there, including Kentucky, who are, are is at forty percent, and and then there's several southern and mountain west states that are bringing up the rear with Mississippi at thirty one percent, that's worst in the country, but then Alabama and Louisiana are right there at thirty two percent. So Jasmine, we had said that like there was pretty closely bunched across the country when the supply was the main issue. But now there's a huge separation. You know, we got 30% for Mississippi and 60% for New Hampshire. So that is, uh, you know, double <laughs> uh, one state versus the other. And uh, to me, it seems like the politics and the level of conservatism is really playing a huge part. And who is making the choice to get vaccinated now that most of the supply issues have gone away, which that seems bad. Yeah, like 60% versus 30% is like really huge, but honestly not surprising at all. I think we all knew that this would happen whenever, you know, it was about this time, late April, early May last year, um, where more conservative people um, started getting upset about restrictions and mask wearing and things like that. And it was trending in a bad direction then. And I think we all knew even before we had a vaccine that there would be an anti-vaccine movement once we had one. And it looks like we're seeing that pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. It's like basically following a year ago. So like that's when people started being able to get vaccinated versus when the the disease started showing up. And then now it's like as people started rebelling against restrictions and that's when they're rebelling against vaccines. So that's too bad. Um, But I do think it's interesting. So, like, Kentucky and other conservative states are facing pretty significant headwinds around the vaccine right now. You know, Kentucky, I do think, has a government that's really pushing people to get vaccinated, which is not true of every southern state. Um, So I do think we're going to give it our best shot. 
Kentucky is shifting away from mass vaccination sites and towards like more mobile units, and that's especially true in Louisville. So the Louvac site, which was at Broadbent Arena, is closing down after giving its 100,000th person a vaccine. So that's pretty good, you know, for one county, uh, for Louisville to have done 100,000 vaccines in one site. Uh, and, and, you know, I think we'll remember that as like something that happened that went pretty well, the, the Louvac site. I know that your husband kind of had a weird experience there having to wait for like several hours. Yeah, he... He was scheduled on what ended up being a snow day, like the one terrible snow yeah. day that we had. And so they got him in the next day, but I think they just rescheduled everyone for the next day. So yeah. he had a really long wait to get his. And, like, I don't know, the thing about that site was that you couldn't get in there. Like, Yeah, it was hard to schedule, but they did do 100,000 yeah. vaccines there. Like, I think that that will be tied in with, like, as we got vaccines, that's where people went and we were able to distribute all the stuff that we got. I mean, that was when it was really going. We were giving out like 95% of what we got in a week. Um, and yeah, just access was tough because there wasn't as much supply. Yeah. It's but, crazy that like all of those appointments have been booked up for so long and then now it's closing. Yeah. So, like try to do mobile units to get people to come. Yeah. To do it. I yeah. saw that like, you could get vaccinated at the Louisville City soccer game. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I mean, and that's the thing. We're we're shifting to more like mobile and tactical <laughs> kind of yeah. uh, kind of vaccinations. Uh, it is a little bit like war, <laughs> and I guess it's kind of true. We're at war with the we're at war with the coronavirus, uh, and, and we are moving from like this large battalion of people who are doing it all on one site to like, yeah, if you're at the Louisville City game, you can get the vaccine, and hopefully they'll do stuff like. I don't know if we're having a monster truck rally anytime soon, but, you know, that's a good place to put it to. Maybe the state fair, uh, if Ryan, Ryan Corals lets them, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. That's what we're going to start seeing across the state of Kentucky. So um, hopefully it makes a difference. Um, I think that, you know, we're starting to see the demand really evaporate, but we are still doing like we did 50,000 people last week or more, which that's a lot of people. Uh, so that's not anything to sneeze at. So there you go. Uh, Kentucky did lift the mask mandate for outdoor gatherings of less than a thousand people, which is in line with new CDC guidance. Jasmine, I saw this piece of news and then I saw a lot of people reacting in the news by saying, I didn't even know that Kentucky had a mask ordinance. Did you know that? Do you remember? I mean, we talk about this every week, so probably, but were you surprised that people didn't know that? I guess it's not that surprising that they didn't know about outdoor gatherings. I didn't, you know, I don't really know what the specific orders are because i haven't read them (laughs) in quite some time because i feel like this is kind of like limited you know this is for less than a thousand people so if you're still going to like a soccer game or a baseball game like that's going to be greater than a thousand people and you still have to wear a mask there so i don't know i feel like this applies to like a a smaller subset of events i think like the only thing that it would impact for for me as I go to like an outdoor workout class sometimes. That would, would apply to that. Something like that. Or if you had a wedding this summer that you were going to, that was outdoors mm-hmm. or like company picnics, church picnics. Those are things that would have technically been under the mask. I mean, not church picnics because churches are different, but like <laughs> company picnics, city events, government events. Like my neighborhood always does like, or the city of Strathmore village where I technically live 
Uh, they always do like a annual outdoor picnic at the big like green space in our neighborhood. Like that would have technically been under the mask mandate. So stuff like that mm-hmm. will no longer have it. But, you know, I think that's in line with I, I kind of feel like mask mandates are kind of like, you know, they're mandates, but they're also kind of guidelines <laughs> uh, in terms of like where to signal to people when the government says you should be wearing a mask. And I do think like the new guidance about people who are vaccinated and like the ideas around outdoor spread and who's vaccinated and what's safe, like that's good news, I think, probably. Um, So hopefully more people get vaccinated so that will our case numbers just dwindle to nothing and then we'll be able to just go back to normal. But I don't think that's in the cards for anytime soon. Uh, But I do think the government is approaching and trying to deal with those problems as they exist. So. That's your COVID update for this week. Wear your mask like we are. We are recording in person, but we are still wearing our masks. And yeah, uh, get vaccinated ASAP if you haven't. Um, And then just be smart otherwise. All right. That's it for this week. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays that you can subscribe to at 4KY.com slash email. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. That's at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>